Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. My guest today is Charles Chuck Marone, the founder and president of Strong Towns. He is a professional engineer and land use planner with decades of experience. He is the author of Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity, as well as Confessions of a Recovering Engineer. Welcome to the show, Chuck. Hey, thanks, Mark. It's really nice to be here. So I guess let's start by asking, what are Strong Towns? Oh, my gosh. Well, there's a number of ways I could take that. Strong Towns is an organization that I run. It's also a movement of people around the world that are working to make their places stronger and more resilient. But we talk about Strong Towns as being places that can take care of themselves, places that have the strength and the capacity financially, culturally, politically, to solve their own problems and to take care of their own future. So what does that mean in practice? Uh, Obviously, everybody is in favor of solving their own problems and taking care of their own future. Is this not happening in kind of towns and cities in America or the world today? Let me go back to kind of what I think is the original core Strong Towns insight. And that is that the North American development pattern, the, the way we build our cities, creates a lot of liabilities and not enough wealth financially to actually take care of those liabilities. If you look at American cities after World War II, it's a pretty easy story to tell. I mean, we we took cities that were concentrated, centralized, and, and were growing incrementally in kind of three dimensions, incrementally up, incrementally out, and becoming incrementally more intense. And we just made them hyper out. We had them grow kinetically in one direction, out. And when you do that, you can generate a lot of growth short term. I mean, coming out of the Great Depression and World War II, that was the goal. We want to create a lot of jobs, a lot of growth, a lot of opportunity, and you can really grow very, very quickly. But it winds up to be a lot like slash and burn agriculture. I mean, you can farm really quickly and raise a lot of crops, but you leave a lot of uh, disaster in your wake. When you take a city that is stable, a city that maybe needs improvement and maybe needs betterment, but, but is a stable place and you spread it out over a large area, driving up the costs while denuding the tax base, you get a fiscal insolvency. And what we see in cities all over North America is that they lack the capacity, they actually lack the wealth internal to their systems to maintain their critical infrastructure. They, they can't fix their pipes without help. They can't fix their roads and streets without help. They can't provide police protection and fire protection in transit service and, and other services without massive assistance from the outside. They have grown fragilely, you know, financially fragile and weak. Interesting. I mean, if I think about American cities today and just like where kind of the money, I assume outside help in this case means that the, mostly the federal government, also the state government a little bit. Is that correct? Yeah. And then also, you know, just generating as much growth as possible. I mean, the, the way cities grow today has kind of a Ponzi scheme like aspect to it. If you can get a, a developer to come in with Wall Street money through, you know, a tax program or, you know, just a bond commitment or what have you, you can generate a lot of new development and that that transaction cost will be absorbed by someone taking on a mortgage or a commercial real estate loan. As a city, then you get brand new infrastructure, you get brand new growth, and you've got 25, 30 years of positive cash flow before the costs kick in. So yeah, federal state government also, you know, there's a private sector component too. So let's, I guess, quantify that a little bit more. We can say, all right, there the liabilities are exceeding the, I guess, revenue streams. What percentage of those are being covered by an influx of Wall Street capital? What percentage are being covered by an mm. influx of state? What percentage? And obviously, you know, these are, might not be exact, but just kind of baseline estimates. What percentage are being covered by federal And then second is, how can we imagine if we, let's say, put like year zero at 1950, 
So that's when uh, that's kind of the car boom really started. We started redesigning our cities in that way. How have those kind of changes evolved over time? That second question is a lot easier than the first one. The first one really, really varies based on place. And you can go to northeastern cities that were far more mature and developed at the end of World War II. There was more there there in a sense. And you can contrast that to the southwest of the country, uh, which uh, almost all the development pattern is after post-World War II. And there's very different percentages. You know, if you took a New York City, for example, and compare that to a Phoenix or even, uh, you know, more comparable size, if you took a Boston or even like a Newark and compared that to a Phoenix or San Diego, it's a, it's a much different situation. The latter two having, I think, earlier in their life cycle, having more financial burn, churn rate than the stuff you see in the Northeast. So the question really is not answerable in terms of the percentage. I think the more like apt way to think about this is the time interval. If you're a suburb that was built in, you know, the 2000s, so you're brand new in the last 20 years, you probably have the new mall, you've got the new big box stores, you've got all the new franchise restaurants, you've got the newest housing. So you've got kind of the middle upper class or the lower upper class, the upper middle class, you know, that type of group in, you've got the larger houses, the kind of the estates. Those cities right now are sitting from a cash flow perspective really well. Everything is brand new. Everything is, you know, been built and absorbed by the private market. They probably get very little federal money, very little state money. Things are doing really well. If you go back another decade or two to the cities that were built before that, what you see is that those places, because they're built kind of like instant city, they start to age at the same time. They start to experience all that distress. You know, if you take a, a development where you have 100 houses built at the same time, 30 years later, everybody's roof in that development fails at the same time. You know, everybody's sidewalk falls apart at the same time. So you have this across the board distress that a, a neighborhood or a whole community will go through all at once. And that's where we see tax rates start to creep up, debt issuances, they start to take on more debt because there isn't the tax base there to actually make good on all those promises. And so you start trying to make ends meet. Uh, by other means. You start to see a little bit of federal and state assistance come in. As you get to the third generation then, when you've kind of increased taxes as much as your tax base can handle, your affluent people have moved on to the next place, your debt levels have climbed way up, then we start to see things you know, fall apart. We start to see places that defer maintenance start to really bite. And we start to see a lot more you know, desperation from a federal and state standpoint to generate that next little bit of growth that will give us that financial sugar high to kind of keep going. Does that make sense, Mark? It's a cycle, but it's a cycle that is kind of building off of that post-World War II pattern, which in the Northeast is a very different experience than you see like out West. So what's a city or municipality that is already late in the cycle that we can look and say, all right, what is happening here is something that we can ha expect to happen in many other places in the next 20 to 30 years. I think Detroit would be one we would talk about, but I think maybe focus on Ferguson, Missouri. Ferguson, Missouri was in the news six years ago, you know, because of the killing of Michael Brown. And, you know, there was all this attention on the, uh, the unrest of the population, the fact that you had an all white police force and a, you know, very large percentage of minority population. And a government that seemed very out of touch with the people. And I think that's actually easy to understand and explain. During the initial post-war boom of the St. Louis region, Ferguson was the place to be. It was the rich suburb. It was the place where the affluent people moved to on the edge of town and started this new experimental way of, of building cities, which is what the, the post-war North American pattern is. It's a, it's a big experiment. As that one reached its first life cycle, those affluent people moved on, leaving a more middle-class kind of city. And as the city has continued to age and experience this distress, you have rising debt levels, rising tax levels, and a, a middle-class that has fleed, uh, fled and left behind very impoverished people. That's why you have a fire department. You know, those are long-term pensioned jobs. You've got a fire department or a police department that's all white. Those are people whose family lived there a generation ago, and they have stayed around because they had to for work or they had to for their jobs to keep the pension. 
But the population is no longer reflected that way. The population has changed and evolved. If you look at Ferguson, what you see is that the year that Michael Brown was was shot and killed, they spent $80,000 on sidewalk maintenance and something like $700,000 on debt service. That's what you see in like this third life cycle of this experiment is that the rising level of debt and debt payments and start to overwhelm the deferred maintenance. And you get a city that falls apart. You get a city where people can't walk on the sidewalk because the sidewalks literally are not there or not taken care of or too insufficient for that population. What has been the most successful urban development of the last 50 years? Wow, that's a really good question. I don't know because, you know, everything that we have done, and I, I say everything, that's a little too broad of a umbrella. Most of the things we've done the last 50 years have, of course, followed this build all at once and build to a finished state kind of development. And so it's inherently fragile. Even, even when it's new, uh, it has this internal fragility to it. But let me explain that a little bit. If you look at pre-Great Depression development patterns, what you see is that everything was built incrementally. It was built with an internal structure that was adaptable and flexible. You would start in a neighborhood with modest levels of investment. And over time, rising land values as structures start to fall apart would create this redevelopment pressure. And we see neighborhoods go from little shacks to mid-sized structures to larger, more you know, magnificent types of buildings over multiple generations. The stuff we built brand new today, the stuff we've built you know, in recent times, has all been built on this ethic. You know, we go out and we build things, we build it to a completed state and it's done. And so you can look at, you know, magnificent buildings. I'm from Minnesota. This is not a magnificent building, but I look at something like the, the Metrodome, which was built in the early 1980s when I was a kid. And at the time it was built, I remember like it was just this marvel, like, oh my gosh, we have this indoor stadium. We can play all in the winter now and in the spring when it's cold here. You know, I remember going there with my family and being, this is amazing. You know, it shortly became a laughing stock, and after 22 or 24 years was torn down and rebuilt. Even the most expensive buildings we build today are not designed to last. They're temporary. They're disposable. They're one life cycle in one generation. If you ask me what I'm most excited about, there are neighborhoods in Detroit where they are recapturing the urban framework, you know, where they're going in and taking old buildings and instead of tearing them down and rebuilding, they're actually taking those old materials and, and reusing them. They're reusing those buildings. They're bringing them back. And I, I think neighborhoods like that are probably the most exciting places in North America today. Will the Parisian 15-minute city be successful? Yeah. Yeah. Would it be successful? Is that your question? Yeah. Well, will it? I mean, that's their whole thing. They want to do a 15-minute city where you can like work yeah. Take kids to school, go out to eat, et cetera, all within 15 minutes of your living. Yeah. Let me put it this way. I feel like there's multiple components to making a city work. And the ability to walk, the ability to live in a, a neighborhood where you can get to things on a daily basis that you, you need to be able to get to and to have options beyond getting in a car driving through the hierarchical road network, winding up in congestion, uh, you know, the whole separation of uses type of modern zoning pattern. That is a critical element of it. That's a critical part of it. And so, yeah, if you had me, you know, hedge or say what place would be more likely to do well than not, it, it's certainly a prerequisite for success is a neighborhood centered around people their ability to walk and to bike and to live within a neighborhood without being forced to leave that neighborhood just to get their daily essentials. You said this is a problem in, I guess, North America. What then European or Asian or maybe Latin American cities have dealt with the car era particularly well? Well, I've not been fortunate enough to travel much outside of Europe. I was in early 2000s, did a number of trips and then have recently as well. It was a fascinating, you know, to be in Ireland in 2003, 2004, when they were copying on the outskirts of their, their beautiful little towns, their beautiful cities in the Irish countryside. 
and then you get on the outskirts of them, you would see the American style of development. There'd be this beautiful little town, and then out on the edge, there'd be this short cul-de-sac with 20 homes on it that just looked out of place. And of course, Ireland, when they hit the housing crisis, had the worst, you know, the worst experience in Europe with tens of billions of dollars of debt assumed publicly. And it, it really has bankrupted the country in many ways. You know, you look at places around the world that have copied the North American development pattern. And to an extent, they have in, in almost every place. There's a level of affluence that is, how do I put this? I won't say synonymous with American development, but, you know, if you can have more space, a bigger home, it is a mimic of like a villa in the countryside. And so the idea of being able to provide that to more and more people is kind of like a upper middle class experience in most of the rest of the world. The challenge is that, you know, this becomes separated from the rest of the community. And what you see, particularly in the European cities that I've experienced, is that as much as they would like to build it and as much as some people would ask for it, the real high quality of life does not exist there as much as it does in other places. And I, I, I think, you know, you can take the example next to each other of Belgium and the Netherlands and see two cities that have, or two countries that have taken the North American approach to moving traffic very quickly, to favoring the automobile in Belgium and next door where they did that for a couple of decades and then went dramatically in a different direction. And you see the outcomes of that dispersed over many different indicators, whether it's quality of life or public health or city budgets or tax rates or you know municipal debt. Whatever the function is, you see the Netherlands doing a lot better with a more neighborhood-focused uh, traditional style of development than just neighboring Belgium, where you know I know that they themselves would say there's huge differences between them two culturally, but as someone coming in, you know, from a different place, not not as much, not as much as say from Ireland and Italy, which are you know culturally like very very different places. So Amsterdam, for example, kind of famously went from being very car centric in the 1970s to being much more bike and pedestrian friendly today. Obviously, they have the advantage of being built uh, in the pre-car era. So there was a good kind of bones structure that allowed for uh, transition to a much more walkable, uh, bikeable urban environment. But I mean, I'm looking out my window in Washington, D.C., and it's not like Right. The neighborhood I live in is most of it's like four to six stories. So it has a similar level of density to downtown Amsterdam. So what can kind of we learn from the Amsterdam experience of transitioning from a kind of car centric environment to a much more pedestrian and, and bicycling friendly environment? Yeah, I feel like there's so many lessons to learn. I feel like the one, though, that maybe is the hardest or the, the most difficult for us based on where we're at today is that you can get around Amsterdam really well. You can get around Amsterdam easier and more quickly than you can around Washington, D.C. And a lot of the impetus that keeps us from changing, you know, a lot of the stuff that holds us back from doing something different is that it's hard to envision the world when you crowd out the automobile. And I'm going I'm to use that verb, you know, crowd out you're basically replacing auto trips with other trips, be it transit or be it biking and walking. You're thickening up your neighborhoods. They're making you know life, in a sense, traveling at a slower speed. And that feels like less mobility than more to someone who has not experienced it. It feels like I can't get in my car and drive really fast. And so I'm limited to the number of places that I can get. But the reality is that Amsterdam combines a priority. It's not just that they built bike-friendly places. They actually prioritize over automobile through trips. They prioritize transit. They prioritize biking. They prioritize walking. And so the ability to get around in those places by these other you know, methods of transportation is so superior that your mobility is actually greater than getting in an automobile in a North American city. You can get more places more quickly in Amsterdam than you can in Washington, D.C. And that's bizarre. That really is crazy. The reason for that is actually kind of simple to understand. If you look at it, automobiles take up a lot of space. 
They require a lot of space to park. They require, you know, and store. They require a lot of space when they're moving. They crowd out a lot of other stuff. And so what you wind up with when you're auto-centric is you wind up with denuded neighborhoods, neighborhoods that have an excessive amount of car storage in them as opposed to other things that you would want, housing, jobs, places to eat, places to buy food, places to, to go. All of that is crowded out by storing automobiles. And then your public realm, which you know you can you can move a lot of people on bikes very quickly if you've got the space an automobile will take up the space that you know when it's moving that a dozen bikes would take up you know because it needs more spacing it needs more room around it bikes you can squeeze closer together you can put more people a car can theoretically take more than one person but rarely does even in an urban setting and so you know a place like Amsterdam we look at as Americans and think the transition to that would be so painful because all of a sudden my mobility would be limited. But you have to look in a place like Washington, D.C. and say, okay, yes, there would be some transition issues that you'd go through. But, you know, the pain of housing that's not affordable, the pain of, you know, the job, you know, your commute right now. There's a lot of pain that you experience living in Washington, D.C. that they don't experience in the Netherlands that, you know, would be alleviated as you switch to a different approach. All right. D.C. is somewhat advantageous in that much of it was built prior to the car. So it does have a higher level of density, at least in the downtown area, than some kind of right uh, southwestern American cities. What should we expect Southwestern American cities like LA, like Phoenix to look like in 30 years? I think that's the big question, right? I think that's the big outstanding question because when you run the math on these places, forget the environmental issues, the, the water, you know, all this like existential stuff, maybe they'll solve those things. I don't know. But if you just look at the math of the places, they shouldn't exist. I mean, they, they should go away. And by go away, I literally mean Phoenix needs to shrink by 70-80% of the land area that it has in order to reach a viable ratio of public investment to private investment. You know, if you have a billion dollars or let's make it more simple, if you have a million dollars of pipe in the ground, you have to have a tax base that's at least 20 to 30 to 40 million dollars for every million dollar of stuff you've got in the ground because that's the tax base you tax in order to you know, sustain and maintain and replace and fix and rehabilitate that infrastructure in the ground. When you look at places like Phoenix, the ratio tends to be closer to one-to-one. Or, you know, we've seen it in other places below one-to-one, where, you know, for every dollar of interchange, highway interstate, frontage road, pipe in the ground, drainage system, you add up all of that, the public parks, the public buildings, and you'll get, you know, a number and then you'll look at the tax base and it will actually be that number or less. That's what you see in LA. That's what you see in Phoenix. And that that doesn't financially compute. Like that doesn't make any sense. You can't tax a million dollar property to pay a million dollars of infrastructure maintenance. Like it just, it the numbers don't exist. And so these places to me have a fundamental internal insolvency to them that will work itself out over the next generation in ways that I think will look a lot more like what Detroit has gone through than anything else. Detroit is often looked at as this anomaly of North America, you know, this kind of strange place that used to be very successful. And then for a variety of narratives that we impose on it fell apart. And, you know, if you are in some communities, they will say, well, it's because industry left Detroit. And if you're in some places, it'll say, you know, it's because the government walked away from Detroit and it's been corrupt and poorly managed, or we haven't done the right things by Detroit. And and you go to other places that they're really messed up and they'll say, well, you know, those people who live in Detroit are fundamentally different than we are. And I find all that rationale to be very hollow and self-serving. To me, Detroit's very easy. Detroit was the first city to develop around the automobile. They took a very successful urban place. They stretched it out over a huge area in the decades before and during the Great Depression and World War II. They became the model that everybody else copied. At the end of World War II, Detroit was a booming success. 
you know, they had, they had lots of growth. They had lots of job creation. It was like the place to be. And we all copied their development pattern. But when you spread a population out over a huge area, denuding the tax base and driving up the costs, you get Detroit. Well, in Phoenix, they just started that way. They just copied like the least financially viable part of Detroit, you know, over hundreds of square miles. If you're building a new town or a new city from scratch, what do you do? I don't do it, first of all. I mean, let's put it this way. I know your audience is around the world. And so let me answer this in two different ways. If you're talking about North America, you know, there's a proposal right now. Mark Laurie, who just bought the Minnesota Timberwolves or is in the process of buying my home basketball team, also has this vision of building this utopian city out in the desert. I find these ideas to be, you know, crazy. We have more urban space in decline that has all the utilities, all the roads, they're platted out, the lots are ready to go, and they need investment desperately. Why you would go and build a brand new city does, makes no sense to me. So I would not do it. But let's go around the world and say, in other parts of the world, we're going to build a, a city from scratch. What would we do? I would be humble enough to learn from the traditional pattern of development. If you look at cities throughout history, up until this, this kind of modern experiment we've been on, they all started very small. They started as a series of little pop-up shacks, a collection of little bets, what we call them at Strong Towns, little bets, you know, with very little public investment and very little private investment, but a lot of upside potential. And like a culture growing in a Petri dish, if things worked out, you would see these places grow incrementally up and incrementally out and become incrementally more intense over time, kind of thickening up and becoming more and more successful each iteration and each generation. I would start there. And I, I think what's important as a takeaway from that is to you know learn what I think is the great lesson of the shift from the 20th century to the 21st. The 20th century was a century of mechanism and, you know, physics and mechanics and, and how do we take things and, and, and make them, you know, work kind of through brute force, whether you want to talk about the steamship or the, you know, the airplane or the automobile. We mechanized so many things in the 19th century that coming to the 20th century, we really coasted on this idea that we can turn everything, including the human body and our relations with each other and whatever into mechanical type of relationships. Even the way we run our economy today is very mechanical. You look at the equations that are used to set interest rates and tax rates and you know how much bond purchases the Fed should do. These are very mechanical types of things. I think what we have recognized in the second half and really as we you know enter in the first couple decades of the 21st century is that things are far less mechanical and much more biological in nature. The natural world works in these complex and, and mysterious ways. We've gone through this pandemic now, which, you know, did it arise in a lab? Did it arise out of nature? Either way, you've got a mechanism that uses the kind of brute force of millions, billions, trillions of iterations to come up with what is a successful mechanism. When you look at AI and this revolution we're having now in computers and, and machine learning, what you're seeing is that we're not setting up an equation or mechanics and going forward and doing something very rote. What we're doing is we're saying, here's a, a problem, try it a million different ways and let's figure out which one of these works best and let's iterate off of that. That's actually the way cities were built for thousands of years. There were many, many little experiments going all the time. The ones that worked best were copied and added onto, and the ones that didn't work went away. And it's only been in the 20th century that we decided that, you know, cities can be reduced to equations on vehicle miles traveled and, and you know, code books of street design and, uh, you know, manuals uh, for how to do financing and, and how to build certain types of buildings. I would embrace that more organic, more natural, more iterative type of biological approach if I were to build a city from scratch. Does that make sense, Mark? I think it does. That's something we talk about often at uh, CCI is thinking about how 
to not kind of fight against existing patterns, to look where there is rapid urbanization, to look where there are increasing trade flows and say, look, there are probably going to need to be new urban centers in this area. Therefore, we should take the time and plan what these urban centers might look like. It might, right, to me, this is kind of part of the challenge, always balancing the organic nature and the more, let's say, imposed nature, what that balance looks like. Manhattan is a good example. If you look at Southern Manhattan, it was all part of this organic kind of development, right? Lots of alleyways, streets crossing every which way. And they decided in the commission of 1811, 1812, I forget, to say, hey, look, let's impose a little bit of order. And what they did was not say like, okay, this is what every building is going to look like. They just planned out a grid. They said, all right, here are the grid. Here are the public spaces. Here are the private spaces. These are a lot lot sizes. Now go build. And they didn't pave this grid or anything. It was just like, here's a grid. Here we know like how this is going to work over the future. And so in terms of these, I think, like evolutionary... I think taking a more organic evolutionary approach is important, but also understanding that that works within certain kind of guidelines that you might want to set at an early stage and update at various times is important because you do, I think Manhattan would probably be a worse city if they did not impose that grid. And if they had a lot of kind of crisscrossing alleyways, streets that were in somewhat arbitrary directions, I do believe that would have uh, substantially uh, increased the, I don't know, like transportation costs, uh, limited the the labor market of a city, et cetera. Let's go with that. I do think that that is arguable. I'm not saying that I disagree with it, but I, I think, you know, would Manhattan be a better city or not is an interesting question. Would it be more like the funky parts of Paris that everybody likes? You know, like what would that look like? I feel like your point is the critical one here, which is, in Manhattan, in its stages of maturing, of maturation, it was a framework for development that was really still bottom, very bottom up. And even today, I think Manhattan and you know Queens and, and some of the other boroughs are some of the more exciting places where you can kind of see this organic growth still happening. This is way different than what every you know most every other city in North America experiences, which is here's your cluster of. R1 residential. Here's your R2 residential, which is slightly different than R1. Here's your C1, C2. And we've imposed this kind of static zoning on things, which has created this very mechanistic development pattern, one that is far less organic. So yeah, I think you're right fundamentally that Manhattan's greatness is really a function, not just of its great geography, but of that framework that was created And then how it has allowed the city to build on that framework iteratively over many, many generations. Is there a rule of thumb you think about with regards to density and infrastructure? Like uh, you go to a city or a town and you can say, all right, there's kind of a bunch of three-story townhomes here with some commercial space on the first floor. Therefore, it's probably right like sustainable or right single family home in a like right I don't know areas less sustainable like how do you think about this like just a little bit more granular relationship yeah we hardly use the word density here at strong towns and it's not only because it's a word that is kind of charged and means different things to different people people react to it in different ways uh, but because i actually don't think it describes the pursuit of success i've got a engineering degree, I also have a planning degree. And I know that if you give planners a density metric, they can hit it. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're producing great places, but it might be that you're producing a a dense place that nobody wants to be, which we've seen plenty of examples of that. The way that I think about it and the way that Strong Towns talks about it is in terms of the ratio of private to public investment. I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but it's this idea that you have to have enough private sector investment to sustain and meet the commitments that you make collectively as a community. And so that ratio is at a minimum 20 to one and really in a more comfortable position, somewhere closer to 40 to one, giving you enough wealth in the community to actually take care of and and sustain your public sector, your collective commitments. You mentioned Manhattan and you also mentioned that, you know, they didn't go out and build all the streets 
They just created a grid and then they allowed a grid to kind of transform over time. If you dig into that and look at that, what you'll see is that they had what we at Strong Towns call a good party. A good party, if you think of a, this is one of my board members who likes, who actually lives in New York and likes a good party, came up with this analogy, Ian Rasmussen. He said, think of a party where everybody who shows up brings more to drink and more to eat than they themselves consume. What do you do with that party? That's a great party. You just open up the door and you say, everybody come on in because everybody who shows up makes the party better. But what if you have a party where everybody who shows up eats more and drinks more than they themselves consume? That's a, everybody who shows up starts to make the party worse. And so you just shut the door and you try not to let anybody in. If you look at Manhattan or really, you know, look at the traditional development pattern throughout history, it was a good party. Because in that north part of Manhattan, you would start with just a grid on paper. Nothing. No public infrastructure, no police department, no fire department, nothing. And a few people would show up and they would build modest little structures. And the more people that came there, the more capacity those neighborhoods would build. So all of a sudden, we've got enough people for a bucket brigade. We can't have a full fire department, but there's enough people to come out and show up if something happens. We've got enough people, we can now start grading out the street. Hope we've got enough people here, we can put in a waterworks. And the more people that showed up, the more your capacity grew. And so if you were there, what you wanted is you wanted more neighbors. You wanted more people. You wanted more investment, more stuff. You were, to use the modern vernacular, a yimby. You were a yes in my backyard. Like more people move here, my neighborhood's going to become even better. If we look at like suburban development today as the, as the typical scenario, we have kind of grown a nation of NIMBYs, of not in my backyard kind of people, because that development pattern is a bad party. We require all the infrastructure to be in before you build any homes. You, A developer will go in, build all the streets, the sidewalks, the curbs, everything. They'll put in the parks. You've got a fire department, a police department that already in place. You basically walk into a turnkey pop-up brand new development. And so the idea of adding new neighbors doesn't actually improve your life in any way. It doesn't mean you have more capacity as a community. The reality is you're already financially insolvent and there's a time clock ticking on your development anyway. So there's no amount of like marginal incremental growth, you know, new residents or what have you that can change that or fix that. And so adding new people just means I've got more traffic congestion in my neighborhood. I've got more people trying to use the same park that I use. I've got, you know, more people getting up in my business in my neighborhood. And I don't like that. And so we create like this NIMBY nightmare scenario where all growth is resisted because none of it adds to my overall quality of life. I think this is the major shift in terms of underlying incentives that has been brought about by you know, starting with a development ratio that isn't in that 20 to 1, 40 to 1 range. In other words, as the private sector scales up, we scale up the public side. But starting with a public side that is intense and then hoping that the private investment catches up to that. It doesn't. It's not worked. What do you think of the EMB movement? I have a lot of, you know, common cause with them. I think that, you know, they have some core insights that are really good. I think that we should lean into new development. I think that every neighborhood in the country needs to evolve and change and adapt and thicken up. We have a saying at Strong Towns that no neighborhood should be forced to assume, you know, drastic amounts of change, but no neighborhood can be exempt from change. And so the fundamental, your Yimby insight that no neighborhood can be exempt from change, I think is a really good one. Where we tend to struggle is in the degree of change. And I think a lot of the, you know, very good people out there working to get more housing and more building are very comfortable with a pattern that just gives us anything anywhere. And so, you know, give me the the eight-story tower or the 20-story condo unit. I'll take it even when it doesn't fit in with the neighborhood, even when it creates all kinds of backlash, even when it distorts the underlying finances of that community in a way that ultimately stifles the level of growth and development that you're going to see. We tend to, in theory, like really line up with the Yimby people, but occasionally struggle on a project by project basis when they you know, veer from that 
let's incrementally thicken up all of our neighborhoods and, and get more into the let's build something really huge, really fast. What happened to civil engineering? They shifted from being what I think is like the servant class of, you know, we're going to serve society and make things work. They shifted from being that to being the center of growth and, and development and change. They were the ones with a lot of power. You can kind of see this epitomized with Robert Moses, who, you know, we villainize now. But in reality, you know, we would applaud Robert Moses today using the same tactics of big projects and big visions and, and grand sweeping change if he was doing the things that, you know, our culture today decided were the, the big steps we need to take. I think that what engineers, really what happened is that they were given lots of money and lots of power and, you know, very little checks and asked to accomplish something really massive, which is to re-engineer, reshape, you know, an entire continent within a generation, coming up with a brand new version of how we would all live. And in order to do that, they became very insular. You know, they looking inward, they developed all their own, you know, not just common practices like the code books and the manuals and the standard ways of doing things, but they developed their own language and their own heroes and their own way of talking about their own greatness. And I think you get to this existential crisis, which I would point to the mid 1970s onward as being that in the engineering profession. And the way they have reacted is, you know, the way humans in similar situations react, which is not a lot of self-introspection. It retains that confidence that, you know, we are great. We do great things. We're the ones who build huge dams and huge bridges and transform a continent. We have this history of greatness. And so it's been a lot of how do we double down on that narrative? And I would like to see engineers become much more humble in their approach recognize their limited capacity to understand the complexity, the, you know, the great complexity of cities and shift back into more of a, uh, a humble servant kind of mindset. So I found that one of the most, I guess, interesting parts of your recent book, because you discovered kind of independently a conversation that I think we've been having on this podcast and has been happening in a lot of other places. This idea, I haven't thought about it in the context of civil engineers, but in the context of, I don't know, it might be called the professional class more broadly, I think it has become a little bit sclerotic, insular, um, averse to change. I think we've seen this, for example, in certain parts of the media. One kind of concrete example is when Barack Obama was presenting Obamacare, he says, if you like your plan, you can keep it. Then when it turns out that there is not a lot of plans, but there is some small subset of plans that you can't, in fact, keep, the response of journalists was just to say, hey, everybody knew that he was just a politician overselling. It's like, well, maybe not everybody. Maybe you knew that, but that's because you're now identifying more with kind of protecting the political class than you are with delivering to the, the larger population. If you look at, right, again, to take the journalism example, historically, many journalists were married to firefighters. They were married to nurses. They were much more of a working class than today when they're much more invest, uh, kind of enmeshed in this professional class. And so it's happened under kind of several generations. And I think a very large problem is how do we get these groups to be less insular, to be less, I guess, defensive about their own interests and to take a much broader maybe described as first principles approach. I don't know if this resonates with you at all, but let me pause there. No, it really resonates with me. I feel like we could talk for hours about just this topic, right? Because we're going through this Gutenberg moment aligned with, you know, all these, with the internet kind of layered on all these other accelerating levels of change. And it's very disorienting for us as a society. I, I think your insight that the journalist used to be married to the firefighter and there was a certain kind of egalitarian, you know, understanding, awareness that cross society. We used to live in less bifurcated places. We used to live among each other more. And there was always a gap between the rich and the poor, but the gap was, you know, bridgeable in the sense that we at least walked by each other and rubbed shoulders with each other. And today we very much don't. I think in terms of the engineering profession and a lot of the other kind of silos and hierarchies that make up government. What businesses came out of World War II with 
and what government came out of World War II with was a, a knowledge and an understanding from the military victories that we had had in both world wars that you could accomplish a lot really quickly if you organize yourself in hierarchical silos. So you saw a company like 3M from my home state organize themselves in these very vertical ways. Those types of systems are really efficient at repeating over and over again the same thing. And if we go to city governments today where you have an engineering department, a planning department, a maintenance department, a administration department, a finance department, everybody has their own task and their own kind of set of things. And it actually, I know people will bristle at this, it's ridiculously efficient. Everybody can repeat the same bad thing they're doing over and over and over again very quickly with lots of momentum and the like and be very efficient at it. What companies like 3M recognized in, you know, the early 70s, early 80s, you know, that time frame, and, and what places like Google, you know, and modern companies have kind of just started with is that the trade-off of efficiency is innovation, which you get in a hierarchical siloed system is a lot of efficiency at doing the same thing over and over, but you can't really change course very easily. You can't kind of adapt and move. That may work in the military, you know, where you've got generals who can command and troops who obey and, you know, all these things. But it really does not work in government and it really does not work in the private sector. And so what you see is that a lot of the private sector places have evolved flatter structures, a lot of middle management gone and more like a team based approach where you can get different insights and different expertise as you're going ahead. In government, we're stuck with that old system. We're stuck with the hilos and the, the hierarchies and the silos. Hilos, that's really funny. We're stuck with the hierarchies and the silos. And you get a system that internally resists change. It resists innovation. It resists doing things differently. And that's very frustrating because for many of us, and I'm going to include myself in this, who think local government is critically important, that local government is the place where we take the most effective collective action local government has become so ineffective and so overburdened and so sclerotic, you know, your term, I've used that term as well, that it's sad because we are drastically underperforming. And if we could free up our local governments, we'd actually shift the way they function. I think the people who, you know, kind of reflexively dislike government or think government is bad would have their beliefs challenged. Because I, I think we could do a lot of things, you know, in a really productive way with a different type of, you know, more flat or system at the local level. So I think largely agree with that. The one place I would push back a little bit is I don't think it's only in government. I see it as a broader cultural issue. So one example is during COVID, government was very slow and ineffective at responding. NIH, for example, was very slow at writing grants for COVID research. But most private philanthropic foundations were also very slow. We didn't see Ford or Rockefeller or, or Gates was one of the few that did actually pivot relatively quickly. But to me, it's this broader kind of social and cultural issue where there isn't the ability of, I mean, it's perhaps particularly entrenched in government just because of the incentives government faces and the fact that bureaucrats are very difficult to fire. But I see it as a broader cultural issue. Anyways, we're going to agree on that. We actually okay. don't disagree. <laughs> I agree on that. I mean, when I said the Gutenberg moment, you know, you, you look, the journalism thing is interesting because I remember when, when Fauci said that like mask didn't, wouldn't work and wouldn't help and all that. And there's this whole controversy about that. I do think that there's a certain insider understanding that comes out of the sixties and seventies where insiders were expected to lie for the public good or, or maybe not lie, stretch the truth is the way that they would put it. And I think that, you know, those systems have not caught up to the fact that we just live in a very different world. You know, if you go back to pre-Gutenberg, the priest could tell you what the Bible said and you had to believe him because you'd go to hell. You'd be damned, you know, if you didn't. And then all of a sudden Gutenberg printed Bibles in a bunch of different languages and you could read it for yourself. And you said, well, Jesus doesn't really sound the way you're talking. He sounds a lot more like me. What in the world are you saying? And there was revolution and upheaval and, you know, new systems came out of that. I kind of feel like that's the moment we're in now, right? Where the leadership class of this country and, you know, we've derisively called them the elites 
are just in a different world and we're still figuring out what that is going to look like. Great. So for the last question, what does it mean to build a strong towns movement and what can we expect over the next five to 10 years? That's a really good question. It's funny because in the very early days of strong towns, when it was just me blogging, we, and I say, I'm speaking again, I would call it the strong towns movement. And you know, we had a couple of people at the time who would, you know, comment on articles and say, uh, what do you mean movement? It's just you, you know, what are you talking about? And, you know, me and other people who would collaborate with me, I had this vision that we wanted to change the pattern of development in North America. And we recognized that we had no money and no power and no capacity. And the industry was a trillion dollar a year industry. And so if we were going to have this change, it was going to have to come about by building a movement of people around a new set of ideas. And so I think that that's the answer is like, if you're building a movement, it has to be based on, you know, as the word you used earlier, first principles, it's got to be based on ideas and principles that are universal, that people can buy into, that kind of inspire us to a different place and a different way of being, one that you know, we don't pay someone else to do, but one that we can participate in creating ourselves. That's to me what a movement is all about. If we look ahead five years, we at Strong Towns have been really, really successful in growing our reach and developing this message and getting it out to people. Our audience now is in the millions a year, which is astounding based on, you know, literally this started as a blog that nobody read and grew to this point. But the next five years are going to be about turning that movement from one of sharing ideas and developing ideas and growing just the number of people who are plugged in to now, how do we mobilize people to take action? How do we get people in their communities to actually step up and be the leaders, not necessarily run for council, but maybe on the block, you know, meeting your neighbors and and making things better. How do we actually assert that strong towns vision approach principles, ethics, into the development pattern of our cities from the bottom up. So I hope if we chat five years from now, we can look back and say, wow, this movement has grown from millions of online readers to now actually tens of thousands of cities that are adopting this approach because people locally have, have pushed for that and advocated for that and helped like shepherd that into place. Great. I think that's a great place to end. So thanks for coming on the show, Chuck. Thank you for listening. Thanks a lot, Mark. I really appreciate the time. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities Podcast.